Good morning. Take your Bibles out with me, and I want you to turn to our learning lab for this series, Joy. Turn to uh, Philippians chapter 3. We got to do that again. Turn to Philippians chapter 3, where we are looking at uh, the very um, DNA, if you will, the very fabric of joy. We, we see that God has just created us to be just joy-filled. And in this particular series, as we're kind of going through the high spots of Philippians, we see that, uh, that God offers us this joy. In the Greek, this word joy is the word chara, which means that God gives us this grace-given, calm delight. That is moment by moment. That is not swayed by outward circumstances. How many of you want some of that? That's awesome. Because God's joy is incredible. We're going to get into that. But here, let me just kind of start out with you the way we've been starting out. I just want everybody in here to just give me a great big smile. Real big. And if you're not smiling, I promise you, I may call you out. I mean, you just stand the risk. Great big, I want to see I want to see your smiley, pearly whites. And if you don't have teeth, I want to see your gums. <laughs> just, just kidding. Smile, great big, real big. Like this. Man, y'all, y'all look awesome. This is, this is the way that y'all are supposed to look. When people come to the church, this is the way they should meet you. Y'all look good. But let's sing our song together if we can. If you're happy and you know it, clap your hands. If you're happy and you know it, clap your hands. If you're happy and you know it, then your face will surely show it. If you're happy and you know it, clap your hands. A little louder. If you're happy and you know it, clap your hands. If you're happy and you know it, clap your hands. If you're happy and you know it, then your face will surely show. If you're happy and you know it, clap your hands. <laughs> Man, all the macho guys in here going, I ain't clapping. <laughs> happiness, happiness, happiness. We all desire it. We all crave it. We all pursue it. We all chase it. We all want it. We will step on people, over people, push through people just to catch happiness. But happiness is so shallow, it's so temporary, it's so superficial. We've discovered through this series that happiness is circumstantial. As long as the circumstances stay the way they are when we're happy, we're okay. But if those circumstances happen to change, then our happiness tends to turn into unhappiness. Because happiness is superficial, it's circumstantial. But joy... It's more deep. It's more profound. Joy is supernatural. It is this gift that God gives to us that is so fulfilling and so audacious and so incredible. But our culture, for some reason, wants to hang out in the shallows of happiness. But if you think about this with me for a second, if you dissect happiness, you will find that happiness generally is inseparably linked to security. If we're happy in a certain area, then we're generally secure in that area. Like if we're happy 
in our marriage, we're, we're fairly secure in our marriages. If we're happy in our finances, we're generally secure in our finances. If we're happy on the job, we're generally secure on the job. And so many times, our security is so linked to our happiness. We're happy because we're secure. You know, so it could be that we're not really pursuing happiness as much as we're pursuing security. Or as one of the movies that I've seen, Security! Some of you have seen that movie. We love security. We desire security. We humans, we crave security. When I was growing up, and still today, I guess, I have two brothers. They're younger than me. I'm the oldest of the siblings. And so often, as the oldest, the eldest in the clan, I had the great grand pleasure of challenging their insecurities. It's just a nice way to put that I love to torture them. (laughs) Loved it. And my youngest brother, there's uh, nine or so, a little more than nine years difference between him and I, uh, he had this insecurity of darkness. When the light went off, man, it was, it was on. And so I took advantage of this several times. Many times I would say, okay, uh, John, I want you to go out to the mailbox and get the paper and, and the mail. And it was pitch black. You know, dad had asked me to do it, so I passed it on. You know how you can do it as the oldest child. So I passed it on to him. He said, um, okay, but now keep in mind, our, our mailbox is at the very end of the driveway, which is out next to the street, and it's a long ways away. And so um, he was like, okay, I, I'll do it. If you'll go outside, keep the light on, stand under the carport and watch me, I'll do it. And I was like, okay. <laughs> and so I would go and stand on the, kind of the top step and with the door propped open, the light was on, and I'd say, okay, go. And so he would get to the edge of the carport, and he'd take a couple of steps, and he'd turn around and say, are you, are you still there? I mean, I'm looking at him. I'm not far from him. Are you still there? Yeah, you're not blind, dude. It's just dark, you know. And he'd take a couple more steps and, are you there? Are you there? He'd take a couple more steps and he'd turn around and say, are you there? So finally, when he gets to the point of no return, which is halfway in between the house and the mailbox, he would turn his back and take a couple more steps. I'd run in the house, close the door, turn off the lights and look out the window. Oh, man. And he was trapped. He didn't know which way to go because he was halfway there. He was like. (laughs) And finally, he would take off running back towards the house and he would almost kick the door in and he'd be screaming, it's dark. The lights are off. I thought about that story this week when I thought about this. What happens to you when the lights go out? When the thing that you are secure with, when the lights go out, when you've planned on going in a certain direction in life, but yet life didn't take you in that direction, what happens? What happens when the stock market crashes? What happens when you lose your job? What happens when your health begins to decline? What happens when your husband comes home and says that he's leaving? What happens when your looks begin to leave? For you vain people. What happens? What happens, ladies, when that man that you absolutely thought was going to bring you security and you just could not live without him, and then later in life you can't hardly look at him? What happens? 
What have you placed your security in? See, what have you absolutely thrown yourself into? What is it that you feel makes you secure? What is it that defines you? What is it that you've placed your security in? What are you running after? What are you chasing? What are you holding on to? What are you constantly looking at? You see, what is it that defines you? And if it's not just right, you become very insecure. Speaking about rightness, let me say this to you while I've got your attention. There is only one way to really have security. That way is being right with Christ. There is only one way to have this insatiable, audacious joy, and that is being right with Christ. You see, when you are pursuing God, when you place your faith in Jesus, and you're right with God, you're pursuing rightness or righteousness, if you will, that is when God begins to unfold in your life and unveil to you His incredible security, and that security brings audacious joy. Let me just tell you something. When your life is in a position to where you are right with God, you'll have the greatest security that you've ever known because your faith in Jesus Christ is going to grant to you a joy that will not move. You see, we as Christ followers should be the happiest people on the face of the earth. And we should always look like this. Always. We should always look that way. But generally speaking, many times we're trapped in a prison. We, we've made decisions in our lives and we followed things that we thought were going to bring us security, but generally speaking, they haven't. And so it's left us with a huge void, an unhappy spot, an insecure position. Today I want to talk to you about bringing that real security in your life because your security is not going to come from your spouse your security is not going to come from your income. It's not going to come from your stock portfolio. It's not going to come from anything that is man-made. Your real security is only going to come in Christ alone. And today I want to help you discover how that works. Can I pray for you? I'm going to anyway. So bow your heads. Dear Heavenly Father, you're so awesome. As I look across this crowd, I see people, God, who are smiling. I see people, God, who are crying. I see people, Lord, today who need a touch from you and only you. I see people, God, who have placed their security in things that have left them wanting. So today, God, I ask you to help us to discover God, your true security. Help us discover, God, what it is that you want to do in, in our lives. And Father, today, I ask you as we break this word apart that you'd meet us right where we are. And that, God, we'd realize your audacious joy. For it's in your wonderful name we pray. Amen. Well, you should be in Philippians chapter 3, and here's how we're going to get started today. How, as a Christ follower... Can we have the security of joy? How, as a Christ follower, if you are a Christ follower, how can you have the security of, of joy? I'm going to tell you there are some things that you can do. In fact, Paul, 
in Philippians chapter 3, he tells us that there are some safeguards, some things that you can actually place in your life, things that you have to understand that will help you secure joy, that will help you guard joy and protect joy. I want to talk to you about those things. But first, let me kind of set up where Paul's at for those of you who may not have been here through this series. Paul, when he writes the book of Philippians, he is in prison. And maybe even worse than that, he is shackled and chained to a Roman guard, an elite Roman special forces guard, the Praetorian Guard. 24 hours a day he is shackled. One end of his wrist and maybe even his ankle is shackled to this Roman soldier. 24 hours a day. He's in a pretty unhappy situation. The lights really have gone off, so to speak. He's probably even in a situation that we would all deem insecure. He's gone to Rome in hopes that he would pastor and preach and tell people about Jesus, but yet he's arrested and shackled. But yet somehow in the middle of all of that, he writes this letter from prison, and it's a letter that is absolutely joy-filled. It has this incredible joy, but... I want to set you up today because chapter 3 in Philippians kind of takes a turn. Paul's tone somewhat changes. Paul's position changes. Up until this point, it's been like this this greatly joyful letter. And now he's beginning to talk about how to guard that joy. He takes on this position of, of, of ferocious protector. His guns come out blazing. He writes this particular chapter to two different audiences. We're going to get into that in a few minutes. But basically, he's writing this chapter because there is this group of people who are teaching false things. They're coming against the things that he had established inside of the church of Philippi. And so chapter 3 begins with that. And what he's trying to do in chapter 3 is this. He's trying to make everybody, both audiences, realize that his security is not in man. His security is not in his great and vast accomplishments because Paul wrote most of the New Testament. He had traveled to parts of the world that no one else had the nerve to do. He had established churches all over the known world. He had great and wonderful success, but his security was not in his success. He was there to say, my security is not even in my education. He was highly educated, a very intelligent and wise man with great, great educational background, but yet my security is not in my education either. He was there writing this letter telling people from a prison cell that his security was in Christ alone and an inward relationship that he has with Christ. And that's where chapter 3 comes into play. I want to peel back the layers of of chapter 3 with you, and I want us to see some of the safeguards that Paul makes reference to. Look at verse 1. Look what he says here. He says, Finally, my brothers... I love this next word. Rejoice. Everybody say rejoice. 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 Thank you, you in the back. Let me give you on the count of three. One, two, three. There you go. Rejoice in the Lord. It just blows me away that he's able to be in the very depths of darkness, but yet can write rejoice. And then he says this, it is no trouble. For me to write the same things to you again. And then he says this. And it is a safeguard for you. Everybody say safeguard. Safeguard. You see, he's about to tell us 
the things that safeguard our joy. Here's the very first thing that safeguards your joy. The very first thing that you must realize, and that is this, is that joy is relational, not legalistic. Joy is relational, not legalistic. You see, Paul's going to show us in in verse 2 and following that uh, we have to do everything that we can as Christ followers to resist legalism or you will lose your joy. Everything we can to resist legalism so that you can protect and safeguard your joy. Now let me explain a little bit about legalism. Because this week when I was preparing for this talk, I thought, well, I want to give them a a great definition, yet a simple definition, but yet profound at the same time when it comes to legalism. So I found this definition that I really like about legalism, and it's simply this. Legalism is substituting rules for relationship. Substituting rules for relationship. Here's what legalism is. Legalism is saying, you know what, I can be right with God By just following and obeying the rules as opposed to building a relationship with Christ. I can be all right with God. I can be in a right situation with God by obeying the rules as opposed to being right with God through relationship. This is what's happening in the church. Paul gets wind of this while he's in prison and he says, I'm going to deal with this. So he has great animosity and it shows in verse 2. Look at what he says in verse 2. He says, watch out. For the dogs. Who let the dogs out? (laughs) Praise the Lord. Okay. Let me just tell you what he's saying here. Watch out for the dogs. He's not, you know, being like American Idol, talking about dogs. It's not a homie. It's not a good term here. He's saying those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. You see, let me me tell you something. What's going on here is Paul is speaking to two different audiences. Obviously, he's speaking to the audience at the church at Philippi, but he's also calling some people a name, dogs. These people are a group of people called the Judaizers. The Judaizers, and he calls them dogs for a couple of different reasons. First, I want to say... He uses the term dogs because during that day, in that culture, dogs were the lowest form of animal. They were at the bottom of the food chain. But he calls them dogs because these Judaizers are coming in and doing some things to the church that Paul is very offended by. You see, Paul would go into an area and he would establish this church and he would build this church and he would get leaders in place. He would begin to cultivate relationships. He would begin to cast God's vision and impregnate this church with the vision and and the word of God. And, And then all of these people would begin to be changed and would be excited and would be energized. And then Paul would say, okay, you're ready to stand on your own. Now I'm going to leave and I'm going to go to another city. I'm going to start another church. Well, just as soon as Paul would leave, that little vacuum that was created, the Judaizers would step in. And they would say this. They would say, you know what, we're going to help you because Paul didn't give you the complete message. So we're going to help you with some truths. We're going to kind of give you what Paul didn't give you. He would begin to, they would begin to teach stuff, false teaching things. And the reason why is because they knew that these new Christians were very impressionable. So they would come in and just tell them things because they were like sponges and they were soaking it up. And so he, these Judaizers would come in and they would say things like, well, 
being you are not born as a Jew. You're really unworthy. But we can help you be more right, more right with God, if you'll follow our rules. If you'll live by our rules and our code, you'll be a little closer to God. You'll be closer to being right with God than you are now. And one of the things that you have to do is you must be circumcised. That's one of the things that you must do. Now, keep in mind, during this day, the Judaizers actually called the Gentiles dogs. But Paul has called them dogs at this point. He's done that for a couple of reasons. Number one, he's trying to get their attention as a cutting blow. And number two, he's trying to give the people at the church of of Philippi a kind of a laughing position. Wow, can you believe Paul? They normally call us dogs, and now he's calling them dogs. Woo! See, this thing is kind of going on here beneath the, the, the surface, in between the lines. And so Paul, he kind of ratchets up the pressure. And, and I love this because here's what he does. He, he's got the attention of the Judaizers and, and he says, now you can be circumcised all that you want. You can trim back, you can cut, you can slice and you can dice. But it does not make you right with God. The outward performance of the rules is not what makes you right with God. It is the inward relationship that makes you right with God. You can do all the mutilation of flesh is what he calls them, you mutilators of flesh, but that's not going to make you right with God. And then he says something because he tells us that there is no joy in the flesh There's absolutely no joy in the flesh. Look what he says in in verse 3. I love this. He says, For it is we who are the circumcision. Now, he's not talking about the flesh. He's talking about our hearts have been circumcised. God has trimmed back and cut away the things that we don't need. And he's given us, taken away the old, and he's giving us the new. And he says this, he says, it's not about the flesh. He says, for it is we who are the circumcision. In other words, it's another dig. He's saying, you know, you may think you're the circumcision, but we are. And here's why. Because we've built relationship with God. Look what he says. We who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. You see, Basically, what Paul is saying is is you can say that you're the circumcised, but we're the circumcised. It has nothing to do with the flesh. There is no joy in the flesh. The real joy comes from a real relationship with God. It's the inward thing that's going on. It's not the outward performance. And when he says, I have no confidence in the flesh... He says, I have no confidence in the flesh because it has to be about an authentic relationship with God. It has to be about really, really knowing God. Look what he says in verse 4. I love this because then he really takes it to the next level. Verse 4 he says, Though I myself have reasons for such confidence. He just got through saying we don't have confidence in the flesh. But then he says, Though I myself have reasons for such confidence, if anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, he says, I have more. Now, wow. In other words, I have more reason to be confident in the flesh than you, Judaizers. Why is that? Look what he says. 
He says, uh, I have more because I was circumcised on the eighth day. Wow, that's a Jewish law. I'm of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, which was one of God's favorite tribes. The, the, the temple came out of that. And then he says, a Hebrew of Hebrews. In other words, his mother is a Hebrew, his father is a Hebrew. But not only that, he not only speaks Hebrew, but he also speaks Aramaic. Mm. And then he says, and in regard to the law, and this is what I really love, in regard to the law of Pharisee, you see, there were 613 pharisaical laws, rules. Laws like this, this is, this is what Paul's getting at. Laws like if a hen, you own a hen and that hen lays an egg on Sunday, you can't consume that egg. Laws like if you're bitten by a mosquito, you can't scratch the itch on Sunday. Because that's considered work. Laws like the mirror. On Sundays, lady, you, you'd be in trouble. You cannot look at yourself in the mirror on Sunday. Most of you looked in the mirror this morning. You failed. <laughs> Not, you, you look great. Hold on, let me back up. <laughs> you all look wonderful. You just failed at the pharisaical laws. Good Lord, I need to watch myself. Uh, and then um, another one, guys, you'd be in trouble. You can't watch football on Sundays. Just kidding, that's not in there. But listen, look at verse 6. I love this. He says, as for zeal, persecuting the church. That was me. As for legalistic righteousness, I'm faultless. In other words, I have done every single thing. I know all 613 pharisaical laws. I, have, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I'm from the right tribe. I, my parents are the right people. I am highly educated. I have great zeal. I am faultless when it comes to being right with God according to the rules. But what he's saying is there is more. You see, we tend to do the same thing in our culture today. We, I talk to people all the time and I'll ask them, how is it that you know that you're right with God? And if they're out of the church, here's usually their answer. They'll say, um, because I'm a good person. And my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. Listen, that's not God's system. God's system is not about your good deeds outweighing your bad deeds. You see, God's joy doesn't come from outward performance. It, it comes from an inward relationship but so many times we pull out the checklist and we're like, okay, well, my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. And we, we check the box and we say, I must be okay because my parents are Christians. Check. I go to church most of the time. Check. I, I even watch a little Christian TV. Check. Oh, but last week I did lust after that person. That's not a check. Oh, but I did take communion. So that outweighs the bad. I'm in good shape. Check, check, check. I did cuss all last week. That's definitely not a check. But I did go to church on Wednesday. I went to church twice last week. Check, check, check. Man, I did hang out at some bad websites and Oh, man, I shouldn't have been there, but you know what? I did throw a little money on the offering plate. Check. You know what I'm talking about. We tend to 
do the checklist and we say, well, we must be all right with God. We, we, we must be okay with God because the good outweighs the bad in, in, in my life. But listen, let me tell you something. Don't fall into this pattern because there is no relational value in that type of system. None whatsoever. You see, don't fall into the pattern of, of pulling out the checklist and check the box in your life. Well, let me check the box. I, I went to church today. Check. Don't, don't be so caught up in the outward performance so that people would see you and know that you're a person of God. You see, God doesn't want you to be a, in a check-the-box kind of relationship. God wants you to throw religion out the window and live a relationship. You see, He wants you to live this relationship not because you have to, but because you get to. You see, so so many times, I guess, you know, the bottom line is, don't pull out the scorecard. Don't pull out the scorecard. You may have everything looking right like the Pharisees. I mean, you may have it all looking good. You may have every box checked from the outside looking in. It all looks like you've got it together. You've got security. But what about from the inside looking out? Who are you when no one else is around? Because that's who you really are in Christ. When no one else is watching. When no one else sees what you're doing. That's who you really are in Christ. You see, what Paul is saying is, if you want this audacious, incredible, deep, fulfilling joy, you've got to have this audacious, incredible, deep, meaningful relationship. My question to you is this, do you know him? Or do you know about him? Because there's a difference there. Do you know him? Do you have a relationship with him? Or do you know about him and you can follow the rules? Because there's no joy in following the rules. If you don't have a relationship with God, but you are constantly having to follow the rules, you're going to be out of joy pretty quick. Joy is relational. That's the first thing. Here's the second thing. Fill in the blank. Real joy helps us to sweep away the distractions. Now, I'm going to kind of give you an an illustration here, and I want you just to hang out with me. I don't want to offend anyone. Don't send me any nasty emails, but I'm just going to give you an illustration. Hang with me, and then you'll see where I'm going. We have some awesome neighbors um, in our cul-de-sac where we live, some great people. But our neighbors have this absolute dog that is from the very pits of hell. (laughs) This little teeny poodle about this big. It's the cutest thing you'd ever seen. You would think, wow, how can that little poodle be from the very pits of hell? Well, every morning at 6 o'clock, they open up their door, they let the dog out. The dog comes straight over to our house, comes up on our back stoop, which we exit each and every day, and that dog does his business. I mean all of his business. Every bit of it. He leaves piles of stuff for us. I don't know how such a little dog can do that. But he does. I mean, just piles of stuff. And, and you know, I, I'm wanting to, like, do the unchristian thing and boot that dog like a football. You know, you've heard the State Farm thing where it's like a good neighbor. State Farm is there. We sing, because of our neighbors, watch where you step. <laughs> I mean, literally. You'll see where I'm going in a minute, and then you'll think, well, man, he, he did have a religious tone with that. Um, and so there are times when... You know, we'll know that it's there every day. We know it. And we'll go out and we'll sweep it up and put it away. 
But there are times when we're running late in the mornings and sometimes we'll exit out the door and close the door behind and... Uh, and it becomes a huge distraction. I mean a huge distraction. I mean, you know. It's a mess. You know, there are times in our life as Christ followers that we have these distractions, these little piles of stuff in our lives, and we come to church, and what do we do? We leave it at the back door as opposed to the altar. So we come into church and we lift up our hands and we're like, woo, yeah, praise the Lord, and we feel so good, and this, just as soon as we step out the back door, it's... Paul talks about that, believe it or not, in the next few verses. I want to show you something here. You, you've got to see this because Paul's saying to us in verses 7 and 8, he's saying, make sure that you are focused on Christ and not the distractions because no matter if your distractions are great successes or horrible failures, do not be distracted by anything that will take your attention off of Jesus Christ. And look what he says here. He says, focus upon Christ alone. Look at verse 7. You're, gonna, you're really going to see where I was going. Verse 7 is this. It says, But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Wow. Everything a loss, he says. The good, the bad, the ugly, the sad. He says, for whose sake I have lost all things. And then he says this. He says, I consider them, what? Rubbish. I consider them, what? Paul is saying, everything that has happened in my life is rubbish compared to God. The great things, the bad things, it's all rubbish compared to God. Everything, those little distractions in your life are taking your focus off of God. Those things are rubbish. Let me tell you what the word rubbish is in the Greek. This is where the illustration ties in. The word rubbish in the Greek is the word scubula. Now, during this day, during this time, Paul could have used another word for rubbish, but he chose to use scubula. Scubula was the slang term of the day for excrement. Wow. Didn't know you'd talk about such things in church. It was the slang word for the day. Scubula was the slang term for excrement. You see, if we were to use today's common culture slang word for excrement, we would all have to wash our mouths out with soap. But that is how harsh he gets right here. He gets very, very harsh and to, to the point to where he's saying that everything in life is a distraction. It is scubula without Christ. You see, let me just cut to the chase here real quick. What is it in your life that you have erected that's in between you and God? What is it that is keeping you out of God's presence? What is it that you have placed your security in that is absolutely this barrier in between you and God? Maybe it's something of difficulty. Maybe it's, it's selfishness. Maybe it's pride. Maybe it's past, it's, it's the past failures. Whatever it is, Paul says it's scubula. 
Maybe you've placed your security in a certain person, or maybe it's your finances, or maybe it's, it's something else. Maybe it's a relationship, or maybe it's your spouse, or whatever. You've placed your security there, but yet it's tend to let you down. You see why? You know why? Because it's all scubula. It all pales in comparison to the joy that God offers You see, nothing can stand in the way. You've got to get rid of the distractions. You may call yourself this Christ follower, but you're so focused on the scubula, the distractions, the things that you don't have, the things that you wish you had, the past failures, the past successes. You're focused on all of the stuff, and Paul says it's all scubula. What a cool word. (laughs) It's all scubula. You know what I love? Paul goes one step further. Look at verse 10. Paul says to be focused upon Christ. You see, it's not what you have that brings joy. It's not what you know that brings joy. It's who you know that brings joy. Look how Paul starts out. Verse 10, he says, I I want to know Christ. He says, I want to know Christ. And I want to know the power of His resurrection. Again, I want to take you back 2,000 years ago when the dude was in shackles and the lights had gone out and he's in an insecure situation. He is not writing a letter saying, I want to get out of jail, which most of us would be doing. I want this to end I want my finances to be better. I want to know what's going on in my life. I I want my job to to turn out good. I want my boss to quit mistreating me. I want my neighbor's dog to quit coming over to the house. Whatever it is that you're going through. He didn't write none of that stuff. He says, I want to know Christ. And I want to know the power of His resurrection. You see, if you'll focus upon Christ. The joy that He gives you enables you to sweep away the distractions in your life. Focus on Him. And you'll be able to see past the difficulties. Here's the third thing. Number three, or let me go back and say, number one is obviously joy is relational, not legalistic. Number two, joy enables you to sweep away the distractions. Here's number three. Number three is what I call the joy appraisal. See, in verse 13, we see Paul who's in prison, and he's actually sitting down in prison. And I want you to view him this way. He's kind of writing on this piece of paper, kind of a general ledger of his life. He's writing all of his successes. He's writing all of his failures. and um, you know, He's seeing all of the things that he's actually succeeded in in life and all of the things that he's actually made a miserable mess of. And he's just kind of looking at his life. He's appraising his life. And then he writes in verse 13 what I think is probably one of the most powerful verses in the Bible. He says this. He says, Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. Now this is probably the most successful guy. One of the most successful guys in life. Definitely in Christendom. But he says, I have not yet taken hold of it as he appraises his life. But then he says this, but one thing that I do, forgetting what is behind. You see, I honestly think that there are times in life that we need to sit down 
and truly appraise where we are in life. We need to sit down and be honest with ourselves, comparing our lives to God. Notice I did not say comparing where we are in life to others. I said comparing where you are in life to God's Word and the truths of His Word. You see, we in our culture, we tend to compare ourselves not to God because that's too difficult, but we compare ourselves to someone else. That dude over there, John, he calls himself a Christ follower. Man, his life is messed up. (laughs) My life is messy, but his life is messed up. And I'm better than he is because my life is not as messed up as him, so I must be okay. Man, I I, I come to church more than John. I tithe more than John. I'm better looking than John. You know what I'm talking about. You, You do the same thing. You don't compare your life to the truths of God's Word because, man, that is too difficult. But we tend to look at other Christ followers and say, well, they've got it all together, even though we know they don't have it all together, just so that we can compromise in our own lives. Let me tell you something about the joy appraisal. When you stand before God, God is not going to compare your life to others. God is going to judge your life based upon the assignments that he gave you. That's pretty scary. God's going to judge your life based upon the assignments that he gave you. How you're doing with his work. How are you doing in your marriage? How are you doing in your finances? Those God given ability to make money that God gave you. How are you doing with that? How are you doing in, in your job? How are you doing with your kids? How are you doing with building a church and helping to build a church? That's, that's one of the top things that God puts on your performance chart. How are you doing with that? How are you doing with showing your love to those around you? How are you doing with inviting people to church? Pretty simple stuff. How are you doing? You see, because God wants us to realize that we must appraise our lives. Paul is telling us we must appraise our lives, be truthful with ourselves. Because when we do stand before God, we've got to make sure that we've done all the things that God has asked us to do. You see, when we begin to fulfill His assignment in our life, when that relationship goes to the next level, you're going to have this incredible audacious joy but maybe you're saying to me well hang on a second pastor mark i uh, my past is so bad man I, I don't know that i can do anything for god paul wrote forgetting what's behind pressing on towards the mark well maybe you're saying well hold on a second pastor mark my i, I used to be on top of the world man i had the world by the coattails my best days were behind i had so much but now i have nothing forgetting what's behind and pressing on towards what's ahead. Oh, but, you know, it's so hard to do that because uh, I've got stuff that I'm wanting to do and it's going to cause me not to be able to, uh, I don't know which way to go. I'm kind of stuck in, in the middle, forgetting what is behind and pressing on towards what is ahead. You see... This past week I was watching a show. I don't watch a whole lot of TV. don't have time for it. But there is this one show. I don't know if you've seen it. It's called The Hoarders. Has anyone seen that show? Yeah. Well, in this particular show, you've got this individual, this 
this house that they show, and I mean, there is all of this stuff that is packed up in this house. The, the lady, the wife in the house has kind of packed everything in this house, and there's like little teeny walkways, and, and you can move from room to room. In fact, this particular couple could not even eat together because there was no room. One would eat in one part of the house, usually on a little corner of the bed. They wouldn't even sleep together because half the bed was junked up with stuff and just hoarded all of the stuff. Couldn't move in between the house, uh, in between the rooms. You couldn't, couldn't do anything. And, and, and they interviewed the husband and the wife separate. And the husband said this. He said, he said, I, I would love to bring some things home. There's some stuff that I want. He said, but years ago I, I quit because there's just nowhere to put it. He said, I, I don't want to add to the difficulties that are already here. And, with tears in his eyes, he said, there's just no room for it. And I began to think, you know what? In many of our lives, there's no room for God because we've got our lives so full of the junk, of the scubula, of the ugliness. Paul was saying, there is no future in your past. That's what he was saying. He was saying, sit down, appraise your life, and begin to do what God has created you to do. You see, Paul was saying, my security was not in my accomplishments. My security was not in my education. My security is not in, in, in the people that I know or the things that I have done. My security is in Christ alone. You see, nothing matters. Nothing matters but being right with Christ. That is the only thing that will grant to you security. You see, and some of you are in this place today and maybe you'd say, well, Pastor Mark, I... I'm in a prison. I'm in a prison in my relationships. I feel I'm chained up and I'm so insecure there. My finances are in disarray. I, I'm upside down more than I'm right side up. Maybe you'd say I, I'm imprisoned on my job. I, I'm, I'm shackled. I, I'm imprisoned in my marriage. I'm imprisoned in my health, I'm constantly holding the chains and wondering why. Listen, let me say to you today that you can break out of the prison of insecurity. You can break out of the prison of fear. You can break out of the prison of doubt. You can break out of the prison of financial difficulty. You can break out of the prison of lack. You can break out of the prison of, of discouragement. You can break out of that. But here's the deal. You've got to sweep away the distractions. Build an awesome relationship with God. And fully be truthful with yourself. And say, you know what God? In order for me to get out of this, I know I'm going to have to act as well. But God, I need your help because I don't want to be in these chains anymore. I don't want to be insecure and wondering which way to go. I, I don't know, God, so I need your help. As I look across this crowd today, I see people. You're shaking your head and you're agreeing with me. I see couples who are 
wrapping their arms around one another. And I see this. I, I see it in your life today. And I'm standing before you saying that the only way that you can have real security, which leads to real joy, is to be right with Christ. So today I challenge you to sweep away the junk so that you can focus upon the real deal. Jesus Christ. Stand.